if they start raising rates and then and then get cold feet and pivot back and and and, and ease up or, or or stop the tightening that what that what what that really means is that the duration of the inflation just stretches out Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with economist Steve Hankey. If you haven't yet watched part one of this discussion with Steve, in which he provides the math behind his prediction of persisting six to seven percent inflation all the way through the end of 2023, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. Steve also shares his outlook on which assets will perform best through the stagflation he sees ahead, so be sure to stick around for that. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Steve Hankey. Fed is gonna, it's gonna hike rates until it breaks something. And when it does, many of them think the Fed is going to then be forced to having to pivot back to easing. And I want to, A, get your sense of what you think the odds of a Fed pivot are, but also ask the question is, can the Fed really pivot if inflation is going to remain as persistently high as you think it will? Does that really hamstring the Fed from being able to go back to easing? Because if it does, it's just going to reignite the inflation problem even more. Uh, well, if, first, let's take it. If they start raising rates and then and then get cold feet and pivot back and, 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 and ease up or, or, or stop the tightening. That, what, that, what, what that really means is that the duration of the inflation just stretches out. So, so that, that and, and unless they would really start running the printing presses again, which I kind of have my doubts about that, but they, they could get cold feet and and if they and, and uh, not tighten as much as would be required to wring inflation out of the system hurriedly, and if that's the case, then then the duration of the thing it stretches and, and we go you know into 2024 or something like that. That that's the main thing. You have to realize though that if we look at the United States from World War II, inflation picks up a little bit. Then Korean War comes along, inflation picks up. And finally, they decided, you know, we, we, we got to calm this thing down. So what did they do? They raised interest rates above the inflation rate, above the inflation rate. And, and what, what did Volcker do in the 70s? We also had inflation at, in the 70s, the late 70s. The Fed ultimately raised interest rates above the inflation rate. So, so that is probably what is going to be required to really wring inflation out of the system. We, we don't know for sure because we don't know the relationship between those increases in the federal funds rate and the growth rate in the money supply. And it's the money supply that really counts. I'm just saying, historically, that has been the pattern. The pattern is there have been inflation after World War II, after the Korean War, and in the late 70s. And in those three 
kind of episode, shall we say, to ring it out that ultimately the Fed funds rate did go up uh, above the inflation rate. So, so well, after this- Sorry to interrupt, but is that, is that even possible here? So you're thinking that we could have inflation, you know, CPI of 6% out into the end of 2023. Could, could our heavily indebted system here, because the big difference between the Volcker years is how much more debt there is now. Uh, could we really sustain a 7% inflation rate in this country, uh, uh, interest rate in this country with, without well, I, zombie corporations I, I, dying and I, the government? Again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that that, that is is where they will go. I'm just giving you the, kind of the historical. Right, picture. you're giving me the mathematical and, and answer, and not just the practical one. Think about to kind of think about. It. I'm not predicting where, where the Fed funds rate is actually going to go. Yeah, I'm just saying historically, if you look at it, you you should be watching the Fed funds rate and the rate of inflation that we're observing, and you know just keep in mind. And in the past, it's required. Fed funds rates to go higher than the inflation rate to squeeze the inflation out of the system. Now you were talking about pivoting, you know, and so forth. The, the Fed's always pivoting around, so so we don't know exactly what uh, you know their 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 mood is going to be. Uh, you know, in in a year, for example, if inflation is still hanging around, but uh, but we we're in a recession. I, I don't know what I don't know whether they'll pivot or not pivot. We, we you know, it's a it's a very political environment, and it, and it's a difficult one in the sense that we have an administration that is that is very anti-business and anti-free market and and very status. They're 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 always talking about supply chains and the supply side of the economy. Well, remember Ronald Reagan and. Reaganomics was supply side economics. It was trying to be friendly to the supply side of the economy, deregulating the economy, getting rid of things like price controls and red tape and so forth. Uh, and, and, and as a result, of course, that friendliness to the supply side, it, 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 it makes things run smoother. If you're if you're anti-supply side, you got a problem, and and we do have a problem, and you can see it if you look at trade, for example, the the interventions of the Biden administration on trade have been massive, but, and and they start with Russia, of course. Why why do you think we have this huge disruption in the oil market and gas market now? It's it because of the sanctions. Right, we took a massive source of and, supply and, and out of the picture. Why do you think gasoline is so expensive? We we have an administration that is that is rabid and anti anti oil from day one, and and the refining capacity that we have in the United States it's it's basically maxed out. They they can't produce anymore, and and why is it maxed out? because they haven't been building new capacity because of various government policies, regulations, and so forth and so on. Right, they don't know if they'd be able to make a return on the the, the large investment it requires because of all the unfriendly um, regulation against right. them. Right. 
there's a lot, a, a lot of risk associated. These big plants, number one, if you start building them, they, they take a, quite a while to build. You can't just turn the switch off and, and stop in mid-process and abandon ship. So they have to have a pretty good idea that there's a regulatory environment that's constant, that they aren't going to be put out of business, <laughs> you know, the year a year after they get their refinery expanded, all of a sudden there's going to be some new government regulation coming in saying, oh, that you you can't you can't produce the kind of gas that you were producing in that new refinery you just built because we've changed the regs on you. Right. So, so, so this is this is a supply side constraints and disruptions coming in. If you listen to the Biden administration and and the uh, you know various secretaries of you know you name it, Secretary of Energy, Secretary of Interior, Energy, this ain't they're they're all anti they they don't want supply to be increased in these conventional energy sectors that we have so so that's that's a big disruptive thing uh the sanctions on russia obviously are hugely disruptive and they've not only disrupted oil and gas but food grain mainly grain yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're gonna probably have one of the worst food crises in the world ever this year due to the disruptions yeah, it, of a lot of the. Ukraine so you, so you get a, you get a lot of unintended consequences from from the the sanctions and you know they talk a good line about equity, 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 the poor and so forth and so on. What's damaging the poor right now? Sanctions. Who imposed the sanctions? The United States, the EU, the United Kingdom, but the the poor and poor countries are the ones really getting hit in the food sector. But in general, people who are of low incomes they spend all of their income, and 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 a big chunk of it goes into food and transportation. So they they get hit the worst. No, well, ab absolutely. And I've been, uh, I mean, the, the problems are felt even worse outside of the US, especially in the developing countries where just those two costs alone are the vast majority of what people spend their money on. But but I've been putting videos up on this channel recently about showing how, how much the, the US consumer household is getting squeezed here on this as well. It, it's major issue kind of a massive cluster. I'd love to delve into it more deeply with you, but I've got my eye on the clock here, Stephen. I've got a couple other key questions that I want to ask you before we wrap up here. Um, so I want to ask you about gold in just a moment, because uh, I know it's an asset you follow and you've actually got some interesting solutions around that you publish. But before I get there, um, you've just talked about how we're going to be looking at a most likely a stagflationary environment for the next couple of years. Um, you said the Fed's always pivoting. You don't know exactly what they're going to do next. Um, you don't know how severe or long this recession is going to be. Um, but at a high level, um, most of the people who are watching this channel are trying to get insights from experts like you because they're using them to inform their investing. Um, are there assets as you look into this coming macro environment that you either particularly like or particularly don't like, given what you see? Well, Nominal bonds are, are a no-no because I, I, I think the inflation rate 
it's going to be considerably higher than the market does. The market thinks, looking at the break-even levels of, you know, about 3.6, 3.7% for two for two-year tips. So to, if you look at a two-year horizon, the market thinks the average inflation rate is going to be about three, let's say 3.7%. Well, I, I've given you the numbers for the end of this year, 7%, maybe for the end of 2023, 6% or some, something, maybe a, a tad below that. Well, all of those numbers are higher than the break even. That means that there's going to be still a lot of turmoil in the nominal bond market. So, so I, I think the nominal bond market will, will get hit again. Uh, and, and that's one to stay away from. I still think commodities are fine uh, in, in, in general. And, and there are, uh, there's, a, there's an ETN with a symbol DJP. Uh, it's, check it on Bloomberg. It's a Barclays uh, index. So you, you can you can expose yourself to the to commodities and 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 the only thing I could say on stocks is that in general a market is going to be under pressure because as interest rates go up the multiples come down and that means valuations come down so so the the logic is that the overall market will probably be under remain under quite a bit of pressure in the next year or two, but that doesn't mean that you should not be buying equities if, they, if you, they're, you, know, you find a good company and it's, you think it's fairly priced, I wouldn't have any problem getting into it. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got some that I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with and, and uh, I, think they'll, I think they'll do very well. They're good companies, buy them at the right price. And remember, in a, in a growing economy, now we said we're going to be in a recession, but in, in general, in a growing economy, you, you want to be exposed to equities. Right. You're, 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 always, you're always going to be okay. And again, when I say exposed, buy, buying good companies at, at, at good prices is is obviously always always a winner in a growing economy. Now the economy we've already said is the tr the trouble is it's probably not going to be growing all that well in the next year or two. <laughs> right. So just to put words in your mouth and feel free to correct them, sounds like what you're saying is is next year or two may provide some good entry points for for stocks in the sense that um, you know you're going to have that that. Um, multiple compression you mentioned and the economy is going to be slowing a bit may actually bring some of these prices down and then when we enter you know our next growth cycle um you know if you get into the next couple of years at a good price it could be you, know, you could ride it after that right and so you want to be you 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 would ideally want to be pretty cash heavy right now and, and one way to stay cash heavy uh is treasury uh index protected securities tips so I, I think tips still have a ways to go they, they've they've come off just a little bit but that's a good safe place you're protected from inflation and uh, to put your cash so 
should have some good, good companies, keep them, hold, uh, beef up your cash position, uh, put it in tips, stay, stay away from nominal bonds of all kinds, uh, and, and have some commodity exposure. Okay, and it sounds like you would say sort of build your shopping list so that over the next year, as you see good prices come down in your target, in your targets, you can begin to deploy that cash into that. Yeah, this is a lot different than it was when, when we had the, the COVID crash, you see, in early 2000, and, uh, let's say April, for example, of 2020, you knew once they started cranking up the money supply, you wanted to be in equities and real estate and real assets because once the money supply, this is M MV equals PY again, yep. and, and, and Milton, Milton Friedman 101, the money supply gets goosed. And then asset prices with a lag of about one to nine months shoot up. And what happened? That's exactly what happened. So if you would have asked me in April of 2020, it was a no brainer. You just yeah, you go, said get out of stocks, getting everything else. <laughs> no, no, get into, get into. I'm sorry, get get out of cash, get into everything else. Sorry, yeah, get, get, get into get into real assets because the money supply is being goosed. We know that with a lag of one to nine months, that all of a sudden asset prices are going to go up. So what happened? Real estate went to the moon. Yep. The equity markets went to the moon. It, it, it worked just like a charm. Then with a lag of about six to 18 months after the monetary injection using the quantity theory of money, we, we end up with real economic activity picking up. And you already said, you had the numbers, you had, oh, we were growing at six, eight, nine, 10%. And that was following, following the pattern. And then the last thing that comes after the mon mon money is injected with a lag of 12 to 24 months is inflation. The inflationary hangover, so that, yeah. <laughs> inflationary hangover, so that's what we have. By the way, another thing that's, that's interesting in terms of hitting the poor, and particularly in debted countries, is that as the, as the Fed increases interest rates, of course, the, the dollar has remained very strong, and a lot of the emerging market currencies have tanked relative to the dollar. Well, once those emerging market currencies tank, most of their debt is dollar denominated and yeah. to service their debt, it costs them an arm and a leg. So, so, they, so they're, they're, they're in a terrible situation. Food prices are going up because of sanctions. Oil prices are going up because of sanctions. And their currencies are tanking because the Fed is increasing the interest rates and the dollar is getting strong. I shouldn't say getting strong, it's just remaining strong. It's been super strong for a long, long time, the dollar. Yeah, and, and real quick, because I want to get into gold real quick before we finish up here. Um, what's your outlook on the dollar going into the next couple of years? Do you see it remaining strong? Yes. Okay. Nice short answer. All right, so let's get into gold really quickly. Um, you've launched you launched a new service last year. In fact, I think we kind of announced it on this program uh, for tracking the real time sentiment of gold. And uh, 
you created, I believe, as a tool that investors could use uh, to trade off of potentially. Um, how's that? How's it been performing? And maybe even before you get into that, just just give give us your general outlook for gold in this new world that you see coming ahead. Okay, so I I, I remain long term uh, bull, bullish on gold. You 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 do want some exposure to gold, uh, and 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 the reason for that is that I I do I said the dollar is going to I think will remain strong in the next year or two as it's as it's been the last couple of years but it's been weaponized with these sanctions and and what I, that means is that there there are a lot of countries like Russia that have been sanctioned that that they find it almost impossible to use the dollar now because of the sanctions so those countries are wanting to de-dollarize their reserves, get, get more and more diversified. And one thing that the central banks are buying as they de-dollarize to some extent that they can, they're, they're purchasing gold. So I think that's a, that's a fundamental plus. I think the inflation picture is such that that's also helpful and constructive. What Abe Kaufness and I have done with this, this, these sentiment indicators, that's a much shorter time horizon than looking at the fundamentals. That's not looking at the fundamentals, Adam. That's looking at the shift in sentiment. And, and, and what's, what, this, what we found is that we can, every hour, we, we do what's called text mining of, of over 20 articles that come out every hour. And, and when I say text mining, we can go through the computer, obviously does it, we don't. It, 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 it can determine whether the article is bullish or bearish on gold. And that's the sentiment. The articles are changing around, the sentiment's changing around. And we found that sentiment changes lead, the price changes in gold. And we find that extreme readings of the hanky coughness goal sentiment score usually are a very good indicator of kind of a counter trade, a contrary trade. Let's say you get a, everything's bullish, 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 and you get very extreme bullish sentiment in the market. Those extremes don't stay in the market very long. They revert back towards neutral or maybe even swing all the way towards bearish. So if you had an extreme bullish sentiment, that tells you what? If you're trading, you should be you should be liquidating your long position and going short. And going short. Yeah, it's, it's a good approaching reversal indicator, it sounds like. Right. Exactly. So and 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 we found recently that the, the, the sentiment is moving around much more rapidly. There's much more uncertainty in the gold market now than, than there was six months ago. So the, the market's having trouble to make up its mind. Is it bullish or bearish? It's, it's going all over the place. But if you are trading on this uh, sentiment, we, we have been doing very well. Uh, and and uh, when I say well, if you look at the last year, 
uh, it's on, on the order of uh, up, let's say plus 50%. Wow, so sorry, that 50, five, zero percent? Five, zero. So, so it's, and, and this, by the way, is back testing our algorithm. Now we're, we're actually now running re real accounts. But if we back tested and used our trading rules for the past year, you would have been, you would have been, if we would have been following those rules, Based on the sentiment scores, we, we would be up about fifty percent. So okay, so I, so I know I know that you offer like a daily indicator um, of hey, here's where the sentiment is today. Do, do you do you also offer some sort of trading alert here that that yeah that, yeah we, we okay. do that we, people can can obtain if if they go to the goldsentimentreport.com thegoldsentimentreport.com they can sign up for a, what we call a standard membership that's free and they get a daily sentiment score in their inbox at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Then if you want what we call a gold package, that's $15 a month. Again, you go to the goldsentimentreport.com and, and you get five scores are emailed out to you every day you get the Australian Open, the Dubai Open, the London Open, the U.S. Open, U.S. Close, and 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 you get also additional live alerts under that gold package for fifteen dollars a month. So either way, if you if you just want to look in and 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 get a free subscription, that's fine. Or if you want a more granular, detailed thing, uh, the gold package is fifteen dollars a month. So. So that's okay, great. <laughs> that, that's that's where we're at on the gold sentiment. Now the gold the gold sentiment, by the way, again, it's it's like a technical indicator. It's it's what people used to, you know, the the technical traders uh, used to use. Only this is measuring sentiment. It isn't measuring uh, uh, some some technical index or technical score. It's measuring. The articles coming out on gold, are they bullish or are they bearish? That's basically what the sentiment score tells you. All right, great. Yeah, less technical, more sort of psychological. But as we've, and I've talked with a number of, of guests in this program relatively recently about how the psychology has so much more of an impact on actual price direction than most people realize. Um, but topic for a different day. I've got to wrap things up here, Steve. So um, we'll put the, the URL to that service up when you when you mention it here. Um, I want to ask you how people who've enjoyed uh, listening to you during this interview, how they can best follow you and your work. I know you're very active on Twitter. Um, so share your Twitter handle with us. But is there any other way that people should follow you as well? Uh, okay, you can put my Twitter handle up so they can see that. And now I think I uh, Focus Economics does rank me as the fourth most influential economist in the world based on the Twitter. And, and we're up to, uh, you know, for, I think I, I've got 488,000 followers now. Yeah, you're so, pushing half a million followers. Yeah, so that, that's, that's one way. The, the other way is they, they, people can email me at hanky, you can put, put my email up, hanky at jhu.edu and request to be put on my distribution list and I'll distribute you know 
for example, our interview, I'll distribute it to people on, our, on my distribution list. Articles I have in the Wall Street Journal, I distribute. Articles I have in the National Review, I'll distribute. So that's another way that, that that's, that's actually the easiest way, or they, they can look at my uh, website uh, at, at Cato, the Cato Institute, or they can look at the one at Johns Hopkins University, the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. So I think the best thing is just contact me directly with an email and I'll take care of it. All right, you're a bold man to make that offer, but we will put your email address up here on the screen for those folks that want to follow you that way. All right, Steve, well, look, thank you for giving us so much time. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think you've added a couple really important pieces to the puzzle here. I uh, would love to have you back on later in the year to kind of give us an audible call on how things are unfolding as you see it. Um, but just want to thank you so much and uh, look forward to having you back on the program soon. Hey, great, Adam. Great to be with you as usual. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisors by Wealthion, to react a little bit to what Steve just said, but also talk about what the markets are up to. I'm joined, as usual, by Mike Preston and John Lodra. John, since you were out last week, why don't we start with you here? Um, you know, general reaction to what Steve said, uh, mostly, you know, his forecast is that CPI is going to remain in the six to seven percent range for the next, you know, year and a half, at least, it sounds like. So what do you take away from that? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Good to be back. Um, yeah, I really I enjoyed uh, um, Steve's uh, uh, commentary. Um, you know, I guess uh, he mentioned he had been ranked something like fourth uh, most followed economist by some publications. So, you know, perhaps we should pay some heed as to what he uh, is saying and has said. And, and yes, he, he was prescient uh, when so many of his peers uh, were, were reluctant or, or unable to be in terms of, you know, predicting the, the pretty massive sharp rise in, in inflation. And, you know, really what struck me uh, most is his candor uh, of his you know, criticism really of his profession's uh, absolute abandonment of models and, and, and um, monetary policy frameworks that have been, you know, adhered to for decades. And all of a sudden in the last, you know, couple of decades, especially the last decade, um, all these new novel approaches have been tried and attempted as if the, the models of the past were no longer appropriate. Um, and you know things like the Taylor Rule, which was was a very ironclad guide for setting interest rates, have completely been abandoned. If you look at some charts of where the Taylor Rule has has said your know, short term interest rates should have been over the last several months and years, way higher than where they've been. And and so it, in some ways, it's like you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to kind of predict that at some point um, the wheels were going to come off in so far as the, the unexpected inflation. And I just, I just find it ironic. Um, I think even today or yesterday, there was a, a, a presser, press re release or a press conference where Jerome Powell, the current Fed chair, was, was quoted something to the fact that I'm paraphrasing, but I think I got it pretty close. We're understanding what we really failed to understand about inflation. Like, you know, like the, the, the absolute hubris that, um, you know, suggest that we couldn't have seen this coming when I think Steve, you know, points out there's been models that have predicted this, you know, the monetary base is the reason uh, for this. And, and um, there's a ton of money still in the system. It takes a long time for it to work through. The market is still, in his view, and, and we kind of agree, 
underappreciating um, what this problem is and what is likely going to have to be done to to uh, tame it and, and put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting to, to that pal quote. Um, uh, guys like Steve, you know, were using the equation of exchange to say, hey, pal, we think you're wrong. Mathematically, here's the inflation we think is going to come out the other side. But, you know, less uh, academic folks like you guys and I and a lot of other people were using more sort of, you know, grade school math to say, hey, <laughs> you, you dump, you know, a record amount of trillions and trillions of dollars worth of stimulus into the system in a short period of time there's highly likely to be an inflationary reaction to that, right? And, and the fact that, to your point, John, that the Fed is sort of taking this like, oh my gosh, you know, there was no way anybody could have seen this coming. And we're just now beginning to be able to sort of divine the reasons for this non-transient inflation. Uh, to me, it seems kind of like anybody with a couple of neurons and some eyes, you know, um, at least could have said this was a potential outcome for, for all the stimulus that was being pumped out both by Fed and by Congress uh, in the year and a half after the uh, pandemic outbreak. Um, all right, uh, so Mike, I wanna, I wanna come to you now. Um, feel free to add anything you want onto what John just said there. Um, I, I just wanna also sort of tack on Steve's predictions of like a 70% chance of uh, recession into the mix here. So, you know, as, as we look out through Steve's eyes for the next year and a half, it's hot, year-over-year year inflation every month, um, and it's, uh, you know, an economy sliding pretty aggressively, it seems, into recession. Um, I'd love to hear how you guys are sort of, you know, as capital managers looking at the world, um, if you think those things are going to happen. Yeah, Adam, I think we're very likely at the beginning point of a recession already. You know, a couple other things there that um, I took from the conversation that Steve just had with you is that you know, he believes that inflation is staying here longer than 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 most people believe, and, uh, and frankly, more longer and, and and maybe more severe than the market is pricing in. He talked about break evens in the bond market, which is essentially the uh, the difference between you know the, the regular bond and inflation protected bonds. You just take a look at two bonds of the same maturity and look at the difference. It's an implied break even, and it's the market basically saying, this is what we think inflation is going to be. The break evens are around 3%, Steve said. Um, and he says, uh, based on a number of other things that he went into, he gets pretty mathy with the quantity theory of money and such, but inflation is actually likely to be more like 6% at the end of 2023 and 7% at the end of this year. The market really isn't pricing that in, and that's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a it's it's going to continue to be uh, applying you know downward pressure uh, um, you know on financial markets. Steve talks about building cash, a war chest of cash, and and frankly that you know he thinks that there's going to be great bargains in the year that's one to two years ahead. We can't agree with that more. We have uh, at the moment because we sold a couple of our positions in the last couple of weeks a healthy amount of cash, and we are also looking to be opportunistic. As the market stands right now, it's still trading like everyone wants to buy the dip. Sentiment is not bad, even though some people say it's bad, it's, to us anyway, on the ground and talking to people. Um, really, it seems like everyone's trying to buy this dip still. I can see it in the tape. We see these vertical moves. We've got this support shelf 
around 3,800, 3,900 in the S&P. And there's a number of things that are going to be surprising. Inflation is going to stay hotter than expected. We're probably entering a recession. There's going to be margin compression. Almost certainly there's going to be margin compression, and we're going to see some negative surprises to the downside in earnings. So all of that is to say, you know, continued caution, you know, use stops on your positions, hedge if you can with options and um, raise cash. So there's a lot of talk about the Fed in this talk and rightfully so, but you know, we think that the Fed has not only made a policy mistake here, but really the whole idea of creating money out of thin air and supporting asset prices, ignoring the quantity, um, the quantity theory of money. Uh, is, is coming, is going to come at a cost. And we think we're in for a rough ride to the downside, very likely in the securities markets in, in the two years ahead. All right. So two things you just said there. One is good time for cash. Two is, you know, use hedges to protect downside risk. Um, so you guys, I believe, are, while you have some positions in the market, they're hedged. So you're sort of, you have a, a net sort of zero exposure to stocks when you take your hedges uh, into account. And so you're very cash heavy right now. So you're, you're well positioned if indeed those better values come down the road. Um, and secondly, right before we turned on the recording here, you were telling me about a recent trade you guys just made where you are basically um, liquidating a hedge that you've had on your mining position, um, which has protected the downside. You're basically taking gains uh, off of that hedge, and then you're putting a new one on at a lower price. Uh, basically, again, you're, you're sort of taking gains, but you're still maintaining downside protection on the position. So can you just talk about that real briefly? Yeah, uh, you know, we, we, we'd huddled up and talked about gold miners this morning. Uh, if you look at GDX, which is a proxy for large cap mining stocks, I mean, it's been trading very weakly, or even GDXJ, which is a proxy for junior mining stocks. These stocks are below uh, where they were at equivalent gold prices just a few years ago. And they're probably getting some downdraft from the pullback in commodities that we're seeing in general. But these stocks offer great values fundamentally, and they're oversold technically. Now, that's not to say that anything can't happen because anything can happen. And particularly if we get a, a crash in the S&P, we probably see a further drop in gold mining stocks. However, we believe that we were at a point that it made sense to take some kind of action. We were in the money on some puts, which is a protective option that puts a floor in the price. Our put was in the low 30s and uh, GDX traded down in the 27 range, 27 and change this morning. And we decided to take the profit on that put and immediately buy another one with a lower strike price at the same expiration. And really what that does is it maintains the floor or the protection, but it takes some of the intrinsic value off the table and you know you book that profit. So if, if it continues plunging right from here, we would have been better off to do nothing. But our call is that it's getting pretty overdone and we expect some kind of bounce. I hope we're right. If we're not, we still have the protection in place, but it brings some profit into accounts. All right, great. Thanks for walking through that. I just want the viewers to see what sort of, um, you know, risk management and action looks like. And, you know, as you said, you had the position in GDX in the mining space, but you had the uh, the protective put on it. 
And yeah, unfortunately you wanted GDX to go higher, it went lower, but it got to the point where your put started to get into the money and therefore you were not taking any more losses in the position because you had bought that downside insurance. It's a whole reason why you hedge. So it's great to sort of see that, yeah, the, the, the strategy is playing out the, the, the way you hope it would. Um, all right, and uh, John, look, I'm gonna come back to you here uh, real quick. Um, just want to do a quick check-in. So markets have continued to sort of weaken. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, off the top of my head, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the S&P is still down a little over 20% for the year so far. NASDAQ's probably down around 30-ish or so. God, we were just looking at cryptos. Um, Bitcoin uh, is back down at 19. Can't remember off the top of my head what kind of loss that is, but it's probably getting close to a 40% loss from where it started the year. Um, so a lot of losses still in the markets. And of course, those indexes I just mentioned, that's the index performance. A lot of individual stocks are down a lot more because those indices are propped up by the really big companies there. Um, how are you guys doing at New Harbor? Last time we checked, you were you were still roughly flat for the year. Is that is that still basically true? Yep. Um, you know, with the obviously caveat, there's some dispersion among our clients. And, and for example, some clients that just started with us a few months are going to look a little different year to date than folks who've been with us, you know, for many years. Um, but, you know, I had a call with a client and this is just one client It's not necessarily meant to be a carbon copy of every one of our clients, but they, they were down a half a percent, I think on the year, including our, our fees, which, you know, we're very transparent about our fees do uh, come at the expense of some, some performance. But yeah, so I think broadly speaking, we could, we could say our clients are uh, around the flat time, flat line, certainly massively uh, outperforming through loss avoidance. Um, most of you know uh, what what stocks and bonds generally are doing uh, or have done so far this year, uh, but we're always uh, looking forward. We don't we don't dwell on what we've done so far. It's we just like the trade Mike talked about today. We're all about you know thinking about where we are now and making some you know objective judgments. Um, uh, uh, about where to go from here, right? So, uh, but we're, we're we're very pleased with the defensive uh, posturing and its its uh, its uh, preservation uh, effect for clients this year. All right, yeah, it's a very good, very humble answer. I'm going to tout your guys's horn a little bit. You know, being roughly flat this year when the markets are down as much as I just mentioned, huge accomplishment and a lot of you know what you guys have offered in terms of a value prop to your clients over the years has been. You know, big focus on risk management and capital preservation, and you definitely seem to be earning your stripes as, as being good at doing that this year. So anyways, congrats to you guys. Um, all right. So I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it, uh, and I'll put up a link to it here right now. But uh, I released a video the other day about uh, just how unprepared most Americans are for retirement. Um, the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, li literally most Americans have zero dollars worth of retirement savings. And when you look at the 55-year-old, the 64-year-old cohort, the one that's closest to retirement age, whom you think would have is the most saved up, uh, it's still an incredibly bleak uh, picture. Uh, fully half of them have nothing. And of the half that have saved, the median savings account in that, that half um, is just a little bit over $100,000, which is nothing, but it's not very much to fund 15 to 30 more years of life if you're looking to retire on it. So it's a pretty bleak outlook. Um, so you guys get, I'm sure, 
people reaching out to you every day, you know, saying, hey, guys, you know, can you help me get across this retirement finish line? And I'm just curious, John, if you've got any commentary or counsel to share with people right now, I'm sure a lot of viewers here are looking at their retirement dreams and hopefully a good deal of them are on track. But but I'm guessing there's a lot that that may be saying, I think I'm on track, but gosh, you know, with high inflation and if we go into recession, who knows what's going to happen? So what would you be telling those folks? Yeah, well, first, I, I would tell them it's really important to um, take a hard, you know, hard and objective look at your situation, but also to understand that markets aren't there to accomplish your goals for you, right? And what I mean by that is, let's say someone takes takes an objective analysis on their own or with someone like us, and they find that, hey, I'm just not there. I need to get more growth in my money to, to kind of get, get to the point I need to be so that I can, quote unquote, retire by a certain date. Um, that's all well and good, but uh, if markets aren't um, poised to deliver that, um, trying harder by investing more aggressively isn't, isn't going to make things likely better for you. There, it's likely just to make things that much worse. So I think it's really important to, and, and this is where timing is everything. And, and our, our industry hates the word market timing and, and they you know, profess a you know, blind faith, set it and forget it. And, and, and we get that, you know, and, and there's a time and a place for that. But one of the worst things one can do is, especially if they're getting close to their retirement years, is, is take more risk than the market is likely to reward you for. And there are times where markets are just simply priced to not reward you at all, but just punish you that much greater for taking more risk. You know, think of the year 2000, think of the year 2007. Think of the year 1929. Think of right here and now, even after the pullback so far this year in markets, still by many objective measures, more overvalued than we were at any of those points in time I just talked about. So the takeaway here is um, the, the best way to, 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 to make money sometimes is to not lose a lot of it. And that's where we think we are right now. So as, as far behind as someone might be right now, it's important to realize that trying harder when the market is poised to not, not deliver for you is just going to make things worse. And uh, the, the better returns will come when markets are priced more fairly. Uh, but then it's also about you know, focusing on those things you can control, right? You can't, you can't control markets. You can control how you react and position to them. You can control your lifestyle to some degree. There are certain uh, non-negotiables like eating and, and fuel to get to a job or whatever. Um, but you know, really control those things you can. Consolidate debt, um, you know, pay off debt, uh, especially if it's at a higher interest rate. Um, you know, um, downsize a house, you know, a lot of, and some of these are hard choices. And, and we, we, we oftentimes will work with our clients to, to work through those hard, hard choices, because, because it's not just about dollars and cents, it's oftentimes about, you know, your life, you know, you know, talk about a house, many people have made memories in a certain house, and the idea of downsizing is a really emotional thing. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that, you know, you got to first look at to, to, to get your arms around. And, and we're, we are, very happy to help folks with that kind of stuff. All right, yeah, and you you raised some great points there. Um, you kind of reminded me about um, the interview that I did with Ted Seidel uh, on the public pension crisis. So that that video I mentioned earlier, I really was just talking about sort of um, personal retirement accounts. Um, I didn't really talk about the public pension crisis, except just to give a quick nod to it because it's a it's a deep subject. Um, but if you look at public pensions 
that's a huge ticking time bomb because so many of them are so poorly managed and so underfunded. And if you're interested in that, folks, I'll put up a link to that video here. That'd be actually a really fascinating one to, to watch after this one if you haven't seen it already. Um, but what Ted talks about is uh, in terms of a pension, there's sort of three factors. There's how much money you put in, there's how much money you take out, and then there's the return on the money in the interim, right? And that's sort of what you're saying here, John, which, which is if you're looking at the math uh, of what you think you need and not sure you're going to make it, um, you, you don't just want to completely focus on market return um, and, and, hey, how do I put myself into things that have higher potential return? Because essentially what you're doing is you're turning up the risk dial, right? In an extreme sense, yeah, if you wanted really high return potential, you could just walk into a casino with all your retirement money, right? And, you know, put it all on one spin of the roulette wheel, right? It would be insane. Totally not recommending that. Um, so you might want to look at the other two factors. Hey, can I put more money in, right? Can I, can I create some extra income? Can I tighten my belt a little bit more and just put a bigger percentage of my existing paycheck uh, into, into savings? Um, or you can focus on the money outside, which is, hey, can I, can I downshift maybe my, my expectations? Uh, maybe I'm going to live in a, in a smaller house or maybe I'm going to eat out less every month you know, in my retirement, whatever, right? Um, so those things, as you said, are, are definitely much more in the person's control than what the markets themselves do. Um, and uh, so, okay. So, uh, and then of course, there's there's other things that you can do too, where you can you can um, you know potentially lean on family members and say, hey, you know, I, I could live in a house by myself, but if I'm an aging parent and and I'm, a, I'm the surviving spouse. Maybe we've got adult children where I could move in with them for a little bit and there's some cost savings or whatever. There's, there's a, as you said, a lot of these discussions aren't necessarily easy to contemplate or have, but there's lots of different ways in which somebody can creatively think about how to, uh, how to manage their retirement budget. And, and big question for you, John, and I'll come to you, Mike, is these are discussions that people probably should and certainly can have with a professional financial advisor like you. I'm assuming you guys are pretty skilled in helping people sort of think through the planning process of, hey, what am I going to need for retirement? What's a realistic retirement age for me, given my goals and my current financial situation, all that type of stuff. Is that all true? Yeah, very much is. We do that all the time. And, you know, when we talk to a client, give them a review, we also we also want to know about their their goals and their, their lives. And what's this money mean to them? How important is it to them in the sense of what do they need it to do for them? Uh, uh, you know, and, and, you know, cover all the bases that that, that entails. Okay. Um, Mike, look, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Um, anything to build on this retirement conversation or just to say in parting before we wrap things up? Not really. Um, you know, this is a, an emotional time. This is all about psychology. You know, I think this, this whole era that we've, we've lived through here the last 10 years is about um, psychology. Money printing is about making you feel uncomfortable, chasing a wealth effect that at least partially is an illusion, in my opinion. So um, step back, take a deep breath. Uh, we're happy to have talks with people and, and just, you know, chat about these things. And, um, you know, just that's really it. I don't really have much else to add. No, maybe there's not much to add this week. All right. Well, look, uh, it continues. So this to this week ends uh, the second quarter. Um, so in theory, guys, going forward next week, um, you know, whatever window dressing is is swinging the markets around this week should be over. 
Now, of course, the next big shoe to drop um, is uh, what we talked about uh, last week on this program. Number of different people, um, Stephanie Pomboy, uh, Luke Groman, Peter Bookvar, where they all warned about margin compression, which is that you know inflation as inflation remains high, it pushes up uh, the uh, producer prices that you know the, the companies have to pay. It pushes up wages, it pushes up uh, energy costs, all sorts of things. And what that is going to be doing is that is going to be compressing profits. And at the same time, if the economy is slowing, consumers are spending less, well, that, you know, that's shortening revenue. So these profits are getting squeezed between slumping revenues and rising costs. And that's going to have to be reflected in the earnings forecast of these companies. So as July starts, you know, just like two weeks or so, we're going to start seeing um, a lot of companies announcing earnings for Q2. It's highly likely that those earnings, you know, there may be some real disappointments in there, but even if not, it's hard to imagine that they're not going to be bringing down their forward projections. And if so, then those rosy earnings estimates that we've been talking about for 2023 are going to have to be brought down. And that is going to have to be reflected in a downward move in general stock prices. So I guess uh, I lied, John, I'll let you have the last word, but on, on this quick, important topic, um, what are you guys going to be looking for in July? Yeah, we think that's a, that is a very uh, plausible and perhaps likely uh, uh, thing to uh, that we'll see there, Adam. Uh, reminds me of a chart I just saw. I think by um, your and our friend uh, Tavi Costa from uh, from Crestcat. You know, it was a chart showing a an overlapping of uh, consumer sentiment and uh, the Russell three thousand index. I think, and there's definitely been a divergence where the consumer sen sentiment has taken a, a major turn down. Yet, it's at a record low, I believe. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and, and that, that, of course, sentiment is a manifestation of, for example, the inflationary impact, probably, and the outlook of, of, uh, of that. Um, so, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of indicators that, um, you know, it, it would not be a surprise to see those margins come under pressure, which are coming from record levels, multi-decade record levels, and no small part funded by the, the deficit and surpluses that government have, has, has run in all the stimulus. You know, in a, in, a, in a big picture sense, and John Hussman has done some great work here, all the stimulus, uh, the deficit on the government side has created surpluses on the corporate side, which has have have gone into, you know, higher than than um, than uh, uh, historically, um, you know, witnessed uh, margins. So, so, yeah, we think there's a great uh, chance for those to come down. And that would be right in line with other inflationary periods like the early 70s. That was all about margin collapse and, and uh, the, the stock market had a very tough time in the early 70s, 73, 74. And it was a very similar period, inflation and the Fed was hiking into that inflation, even despite a recessionary kind of uh, environment. So we may very well see that. And, and what that ultimately likely means is stock prices come, come down considerably from where they are. Um, no guarantee there, but that's what we likely may see. All right. Well, we'll be watching that closely and obviously we'll be tracking it on this program every week and letting folks know where we are in that story. Um, <clears throat> all right, folks. Well, look, if you've enjoyed uh, this interview with Steve, uh, the commentary here with the guys at New Harbor, please support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the subscribe button below if you haven't done so already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And whether it's in, in anticipation of potential further weakness in the stock market, or whether it's to get a, a really true assessment of your status for being able to retire when you want, hopefully, um, if you want to, uh, well, 
given the environment we're in, I'll just beat the drum, I beat every week, you should totally be working with a professional financial advisor to work on those plans. If you've got a good one already, great, stick with them. Uh, but if you don't, or you want a second opinion by uh, a good financial advisor that understands all the macro issues we talked about on this channel, like John and Mike and their firm specifically, um, stick around at the end of the video. It's coming up in just a couple of seconds. Um, but we tell you how you can schedule a free, completely no strings attached, a free consultation with those guys. All right. Um, well, everybody else, thanks so much for watching this program. John and Mike, thanks for giving me yet another week here. And whatever happens in the next week, We'll be back on next week to talk about it here. Thanks again for joining me, guys. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free, and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio, and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.